everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. We've both been promoted since the last podcast, so I hope you've all noticed that. Or they must love our podcast over there. Yes, exactly. exactly. Anyway, <laughs> today we are excited to be joined by Tim Keller. He is a senior vice president and legal director at Gen Justice, which is a great organization in Arizona, which I encourage you all to check out online. It is really fighting for foster kids and vulnerable kids in the state of Arizona and has come up with some great legislation over the last few years to help those kids. And their most recent proposal, which we wanted to talk to Tim about today, are cash accounts for kids who are aging out of foster care. So welcome, Tim. Thanks so much for joining us today. And, and tell us a little bit about what you guys want yeah. to do. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Naomi. Thanks, Ian. I've been looking forward to this conversation. As many of your listeners probably know, as you both know, children who age out of foster care tend to fare rather poorly in their ultimate life outcomes. And every year, approximately 23,000 kids will age out of the foster care system without a loving, adoptive family to take care of them and help them out. And the reality is that all young people, in order to make that successful transition from those teenage years to being a successful, independent adult, are going to need help. And so we have proposed what we call fostering independence accounts. What's a profile of that kid? Before you even get to the intervention, I know you can't always generalize, but what's the typical situation that that kid is coming from? Mm, Yeah. So a lot of these kids are coming from a group home where they have you know, maybe bounced around for placements for, for, for many years. In fact, let, let me do this. In the paper, we talk about a specific young man. His name is Johnny. And Johnny was 16 years old when, when my friend Brooke met him. And Johnny had been in, no joke, 40 different places over the course of his 13 years in foster care. Wow. And when my friend Brooke met him, He only had a handful of high school credits to his name. And so he was looking at not graduating from high school. And actually, that's how Brooke and Johnny were connected. She was an attorney who worked in education, and she came in to help him try and reconstruct his educational record to find the credits that that he had, in fact, earned in in other places and and bring all that together in one place to help him graduate. And when she met him, Johnny's literal plan for the future was prison. He intended to emancipate from the foster care system to commit a crime and to go to jail. And that looked really appealing to him because he knew that in prison, he would get three square meals a day, that he would be able to earn his GED and maybe get some job training. And when he ultimately left prison, maybe have a firm foundation for his future. And, you know, the name of this podcast is exactly what my friend Brooke said when she heard about his plan. She said, are you kidding me? That is not a plan for the future. Brooke ended up adopting Johnny, helping him graduate, and and he ultimately went on to to join the Army and is doing well. And so that's, Johnny is is actually not a bad description of of the typical kid. So many of these kids, when they emancipate, are going to walk out of foster care with, with little more than a trash bag full of clothes, maybe a suitcase full of clothes if they're lucky. And their name on a waiting list for for housing or a housing voucher. 
And they're often very anxious to emancipate because they don't want to have, you know, sort of the caseworker telling them what to do. And so even though a lot of states have actually extended the amount of time that kids can remain in the system and receive assistance or housing or any sort of other things, a lot of it's very hard to convince them that they should stay because they don't like the strings that are attached to all of those things. So so you you do often see kids aging out at 16 or 17, even though many states now have provisions for them to stay in to 21 or 23. Wow. I mean, even the word emancipate is such an interesting choice. I mean, it just literally sounds like you're getting out of a, a enslaved situation. As Naomi mentions, a lot of these kids are anxious to leave the system. And we know a couple of things. We know that those kids who choose to remain in care tend to fare better than those who leave early. And so one of the ideas behind the fostering independence accounts was to actually provide incentives for these kids to remain voluntarily in the system. It would be possible to set up a fostering independence account such that the kids who are in care would continue to receive funding into that account the longer they stayed in care. And so we can provide incentives for these kids to stay safe, stay on the radar, and ensure that they don't leave before they're ready to leave. So tell us about a little bit more about the details about your proposal. How would this money be distributed? How much money are we talking about? And how would you ensure that it's, it's spent properly? You know, it's funny, Naomi, we actually ask a lot of those questions at the end of our paper. So the paper is designed to be a concept. It is not overly prescriptive. It is primarily descriptive. We wanted to give state legislators, state policymakers, a lot of room and freedom in possibly designing these accounts and encouraging some innovation across the states as they, you know, if they wanted to, to, to do something like this. Recently, you may have seen that the state of California enacted a bill that would provide a, basically a guaranteed income for, for kids who are leaving the foster care system for about three years, anywhere between $500 and $1,000 each month for those, those kids to use to support their, their individual needs. There's virtually no strings on that particular program, and it passed unanimously. So I, I think that what that bill shows is that there is bipartisan interest and a recognition that kids who are exiting the foster care system need some level of assistance in making that successful transition to adulthood. Our idea with the fostering independence accounts is a little bit different than a, a universal basic income. We, we recognize that you know, something could be structured very similar to that. But our, our idea is that, is that kids would actually start accruing funds into their fostering independence account early on in their foster experience. So, and I say early on, maybe it's 14, maybe it's 16. At some point while they're still in foster care, they'll start accruing these funds. It could be a daily rate, similar to what a foster parent would be receiving for their care. It could be a monthly stipend. We also think that with a fostering independence account, you could provide particular incentives that could apply to kids who are in foster care to meet other milestones to provide a sort of a, a cash bonus for graduating from high school. You could provide a cash incentive for completing a financial literacy course. You could even provide additional cash incentives for successfully maintaining a, a full or part-time job at age 18. And so it's really all about the incentives that, that could be included in, in a fostering independence account program, again, to ensure that kids have incentives to, to stay in the system, to stay on the radar, to continue meaningfully engaging with adults who have their, their interests at heart and to help them make that transition 
to adulthood successfully. And so, yeah, so like I said, there's, there's a lot of options available to policymakers when they're considering. And like a lot of those questions you asked are questions that we ask at the end of our paper. And we mm-hmm. provide a broad range of answers to those questions. There's not but necessarily sounds, one way to do it. But what's interesting about your approach is that you're tying specific outcomes to the benefits that you're providing. In the case of the California law, as you said, and I didn't realize it was three years. I only thought it was one year. But these kids would be getting $1,000 a month or 500 to 1,000, but mostly it's reported 1,000 every month for three years with no strings attached. So what do you think the risk is associated with that kind of policy? Because as you said, I mean, if you use your example of, of Johnny, if, if he's emblematic, who would help Johnny figure out how his high school credit situation, sounds like your colleague significantly helped Johnny be able to even prepare. And so getting the money may or may not have actually helped him get that critical resource at the time he needed it. Yeah, I, I think the concern with the, 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 the no strings attached approach without some level of, of help and support available to the foster youth could potentially lead to similar outcomes to the, that they're currently experiencing or simply move them on from, from, from one program of government support to another form of welfare in the future. And the idea is to help them make, like I said, that successful transition to adulthood where they don't have to rely on government benefits because they've got perhaps a college degree at some point, a successful full-time job. They're able to support themselves truly independently. And so, again, the idea behind the fostering independence accounts is is to provide some incentives for those kids to continue to meaningfully engage with the system. There's another program here operated by another nonprofit that, that gives kids a free cell phone. And that program says that you have unlimited minutes and unlimited data, but in fact, those unlimited minutes and data are doled out in bits and chunks. And so in order to renew it, you've got to pick up the phone, call in, check with somebody, and you know they're going to make sure that you're doing all right. Do you need any help? If there are other programs available to you that might be able to meet other needs that you know, aren't, aren't met just by having a cell phone, the fostering independence accounts could do something similar, you know, to require a check-in before that next deposit is made into the account to find out how you're doing, where you're living, do you have housing, are there other programs or benefits available to you, are there supports that we might be able to provide you with, or, you know, nonprofit organizations in the area that could could help step up with the needs, connecting you with a mentor, those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I found think that people misjudge just how much in the way of support these kids need. I mean, they're they're as you said, you know, your example of somebody who had been through so many placements. I mean, all the things that they miss in those placements about, you know, the way that, you know, adults behave in society and what they have to do in order to get by and paying rent and making meals and learning how to clean up after yourself. There was a program that I visited in Little Rock that was specifically devoted to this question of helping kids who are aging out. They had a center where they, you know, offered kids, you know, laundry facilities. They had computers where kids could file job applications. They had people who would help them get driver's licenses or help them find their birth certificates so that they could then get a driver's license. They had a transitional housing program. And then they had after that, a transition out of the transitional housing program where they would take you to meet landlords to try to get you a lease on an apartment. I mean, a lot of that was all, you know, frankly, privately funded. But, you know, I think, I guess one question I have is, you know, how much of do you think the problems that these kids are having is really 
a cash problem and how much of it is all of these things that they are not getting taught and that they're that they do look at prison as like prison will provide me with structure. Like I don't I don't have any other way to think about about how my future would work out because I've never done that. I think in principle, it makes sense to me to have, you know, to give these kids some financial support. But I wonder if we're not really doing enough on the other side of this and how we can, you know, unless you're just saying that the incentives would be enough for these kids to say, okay, fine, you know, for the extra X number of dollars, I'll go and get my high school diploma. The the thing that I worry about, and, and Ian is, of course, you know, familiar with this problem is to think about that kind of incentive re- requires a certain habits and a certain way of postponing gratification and things like that these kids have never learned. And so, you know, if even if you say to Johnny, like, hey, I'll give you an extra thousand bucks if you complete your your high school diploma or more than that, you know, how many of the kids are going to be able to stick with that, you know, as opposed to needing a lot, a lot more than the money? I think that you're 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 right that money alone is is not the solution. And and we recognize and even say this in, in our in our paper that this is not a panacea. I think what we really need are policies and, and efforts put in to ensure that kids who are in the foster care system actually find adoptive homes and placements. We should never consider a child unadoptable, and we should not put in place any incentives that would preclude a child from pursuing an adoption. Older kids in particular often have the ability to consent or not to consent to an adoption. And that was one of the questions we posed in this paper with this proposal was, you know, how do you ensure that you don't create a perverse incentive? Because a child is always going to be better off with an adoptive family than they are going to be with the state as their parent. I mean, let's face it, the state is a bad parent. They are not adequately preparing these kids for independence. So I think there's a lot more we can do on the front end to prepare these kids for a successful future, which is which is why, you know, as part of the proposal that we have is, is, is suggesting that these accounts should, should start accruing well before they're exiting the system. Like the California program, those foster kids aren't going to receive the money until they're, they've exited the system. But we can, you know, ideally put systems in place where, where kids are learning financial literacy because they're looking forward to, to this account one day being theirs. So we can teach them how to, to negotiate a contract. We can teach them how to find housing. I'm the father of, of four wonderful boys. My oldest son is 21. My youngest son is 14. And I've got an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old in there. But my 18-year-old and my 21-year-old still need a lot of help <laughs> navigating the world. And, you know, and they've grown up in Absolutely. a stable, loving environment and their entire lives. But it's shocking. Don't want to publicly call them out for making. You know, bad. Ian and I were planning on just shoving our kids out of the nest. And this is like you completely destroyed it for us now. Thanks a lot. They, they need help. Exactly. Right? And they don't just need help, you know, with me writing a check. You know, they, they, they need me to come yes. alongside them to help them make good decisions. So that's interesting because then, you know, again, just to go back to this California example, it's probably one of the most divided states in the country, you know, politically. And yet in the assembly and the Senate, I think the total vote was 100 to zero, right? I mean, that, that does not happen. And, but I actually think it's kind of a dodge. It seems like the, the policymakers know that it's not just about cash. Do you think that there's some kind of 
perverse. It's almost like I think they took the easy way out to just say, let's just give them money, as opposed to really thinking critically about what these kids need. I, I, so there, there's something not right about how this was resolved in, in such a way that's unanimous, but seems to miss a very obvious point about how these kids are really going to be helped. I, said, I think the encouraging part with the unanimous vote is that we can see that the folks on both sides of the aisle recognize that kids who are leaving the foster care system need additional support. We can look at the Absolutely. data and we can see that, that their expected outcomes, especially in the short term, are not good when compared to the rest of society. And so that's, that's encouraging. But I agree that in, in many ways, just giving them cash assistance without any other supports is in fact a dodge. And so I do think that policymakers, when they're, when they're thinking about these sorts of programs that are going to provide now, and I think direct cash assistance is, is, is in many ways better than a voucher. Giving these kids some agencies to make decisions for themselves, as Naomi pointed out earlier, these kids are frustrated that, that the government, foster care parents, group home, the folks who run the group homes have been making decisions for them their entire life. They want to start making decisions for themselves. But the reality is they're, they're still young. They're, 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 their frontal cortex is not fully developed. They're not completely ready to start making wise decisions for themselves that are going to have the sort of lasting good impacts that, that they really need. And so I do think that we need to be thinking about additional supports and measures while we're giving them the direct cash assistance to give them the tools that they need to set themselves up for long-term success. Are there any negative incentives for the systems themselves to limit or to minimize the number of kids aging out of the foster care system? Or is there any impact whatsoever on a child welfare system that has a high number of kids aging out versus a low number? Is there, is there well, any- the, the federal government provides adoption incentive money. So there is that on the, on the ledger. I think that child welfare agencies and states would get some financial incentive to make sure kids are adopted into permanent homes. And and you've actually seen that in the last few years, those numbers go up, particularly with older kids. So that is definitely a factor. I think that, you know, whether we're looking at the effects of the system, I think in terms of outcomes for kids, it's better not to just exit the system without some familial supports exactly. in place. So, I mean, I think if you know, we're going to look at a, a child-centric view of the child welfare system, our goal and our focus should be on finding every child a permanent loving adoptive home, a place where they can, they, they know that, you know, if things aren't going well for them out in the world, they can come home and find, yeah. find refuge. Yeah. So that I think is, is ultimately the, the area that we're yeah. letting these kids down on is, is recruiting families and helping match those kids with, with homes that are going to yeah. really support them in the long, the long term. I was just going to ask you about the sort of the paying for this program. I know that the paper talks about Social Security as one source of funds for these independence accounts. And that's been brought up in a variety of contexts recently, this question of whether states should be using Social Security dollars to pay for the care of foster kids. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on you know, where this money would come from and why you think it's the appropriate place for it to come from. I know that you know, generally speaking, Foster care is paid for by a mix of both federal and state dollars. And it's Title IV of the Social Security Act that, that allows states to seek reimbursement from the federal government for many of the costs associated with foster care. And so our, our first line is that you know, a fostering independence account, right now, the way we 
read federal law would not be one of those reimbursable expenses. Just giving kids direct cash assistance isn't one of the things that the federal government would allow a state to use federal dollars to accomplish. So right now, absent changes to federal law, you would have to rely entirely on state funds to create a program like this. And as I understand the California program, it's a state-funded program. And so one mechanism would be to amend federal law to allow those dollars that are already going to the states, to allow the states to, to use those dollars for these accounts as opposed to the other things that they might be spending on these kids already. And so that's one issue with, with Social Security payments to the states and a source of funds for this program. But I think what you might have been alluding to is, is a recent phenomenon that's been in the news quite a bit where we've discovered that some kids who are in foster care are eligible for other types of social security payments. They're eligible for social security payments if, if they are disabled or if their biological parents have passed away, they're, they're eligible for supplemental social security income. And those kids, a report by NPR and the Marshall Project discovered that states are applying to the Social Security Administration for those benefits and becoming the quote-unquote representative payee for those children and using those Social Security benefits to basically reimburse the state for the cost of providing foster care. I don't think it's unfair to say that basically making, you know, having these kids pay for their own care using Social Security income that they're, they're otherwise entitled to. And that's been a topic of controversy, whether or not the states should be able to reimburse themselves for the cost of foster care using those social security benefits, or whether they should be going directly to the kids in, in some way, shape, or form. And this particular issue popped up on the radar screen just as my co-author, Dan Lips, and I were about to publish this paper. And we thought that perhaps fostering independence accounts would be a mechanism or a solution to this, this particular issue. A state could set up a fostering independence account, and the social security dollars could be deposited into that account and set up as basically a trust for the kids in care. So you could still use those dollars that are deposited in their account to meet current needs of the child, which of course is the, the, the purpose of the social security benefits in the first place. But to the extent that child's needs are being met you know, by the agency, by foster parents, by ultimately adoptive parents, you could still continue to accrue those funds in the fostering independence accounts and, and save those dollars for the future so that those, those benefits would, would be there for the child later on in life and wouldn't just completely disappear mm -hmm. during their time in care. Last question for me, just back to your the exemplar that you noted. I think you said he was 16 at the time he exited the system and he had been in foster care for 13 years. Yes. So I often, you know, I come to think of these things as how do we avoid these issues in the first mm -hmm. place? What should have happened over the course of that 13 years? I mean, he started at three years old. I mean, there's certainly adoptive parents out there, presumably. How could we have avoided that situation over, the, over that 13 years? What's the single biggest thing that should be happening to avoid this happening in the first place? Yeah, I mean, we really need to focus early on in moving these cases along. When a child comes into care, the first plan is typically family reunification. We offer services to the biological parents to work to try and, and reunify the family. But at some point in the system, we have to shift the calculus and start looking at the needs of the child, particularly a young child is in such a oh, wait, 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 wait. At some point, we have to shift the focus to the interest of the child. So that's interesting. Well, ideally, Maybe. that's set to start. <laughs> 
Well, no, no, that's what I'm saying. No, <laughs> you're, you're right. I think that when we start, there's an assumption that the parents and the child's interests are aligned in the goal of reunification. When a child at least initially comes into care, we'll at least start with right. the absence. Any other information. Yeah. 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 You know, we, it, it can be a rebuttable presumption that that's the, in the best interest of the child. But we can start with the assumption that parents and, and, and children's interests are, are aligned in, at the start of the case. But the longer that a case progresses, the, the more we have to say, no, that the child's interested in finding a stable, permanent, loving home and ending this 13 years in care. I mean, that's just crazy. My last foster daughter also came into the system when she was three, and it, it took almost five years for her parents' rights to be terminated and for us to help her find a permanent adoptive home. And she had been in nine different placements before she came to us. And so her, her, her ultimate adoptive family was her 10th placement. And I think a large part of that is because we're not focusing on the rights of children in the context of the foster care system in the first place. Before Gen Justice was founded, my colleague and, and, our, and our organization's founder, Darcy Olson, was sitting in a hearing. And it was a termination hearing. And the judge started the case by saying, I just want to remind everybody that mom's rights are constitutional and baby's rights are merely statutory. And that was Darcy's are you kidding me moment, because the Constitution protects every citizen of the United States, whether you're an infant, whether you're a teenager, whether you're an adult. And so one major focus of gen justice is to ensure that courts recognize that kids have constitutional rights at stake as well. They've got a fundamental wow. constitutional right at stake in their own safety and well-being and in, in the interest of finding a permanent loving home. I told you Jen Justice was doing great work, Ian. That's profound. <laughs> no, we're, we're so appreciative of your work at Jen Justice, and we're so glad, Tim, that you have gone there to help them take yep. these issues as far as they will go up our court system. So, and thank you for coming to talk to us about this issue in particular, fostering independence and kids aging out. So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Tim, thank you so much. It's incredibly important work. Thank you. And you can get episodes of podcasts. Please send us suggestions for guests. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again, Tim. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.